The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. Okay, if you want to go ahead and take your Bibles and open them with me, the book of Philippians, that's where we're going to begin here in just a few moments tonight, the book of Philippians. Um, as I have said to you, I know many, many times when I've taught other books, it's my goal, it may not be your goal, it certainly may not be anyone else's goal, but it's my goal as we go through these books, particularly the New Testament books, when I'm teaching, uh, that we go through them in somewhat of a chronological order. And I've said so many times what that is, that just has to do with dating the books in the time frame in which they were written and when they occurred. And by doing that, sometimes, not always, but sometimes you can advance and enhance your study just a bit and make things a little bit more clear. There are certain things that do not take place until the later times of New Testament writing, and so a lot of things may be mentioned in, for example, may have been mentioned in the book of James. That's one of the earlier New Testament books that do not really come to be a real problem for the Lord's church until a bit later, and such is that. So if you put the New Testament books in a chronological order, sometimes that can enhance your study. Now, I always clarify that, and I know I've spent weeks and weeks talking about the same, but just to say it again, uh, when you sit down to read your New Testaments, however, it's obvious that you have to read the Gospel accounts. Whether or not you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to get started, or whether you just select one of those four Gospels and move on, sometimes you can do that. But always, if you're starting a study in the New Testament, if you've not already studied the New Testament uh, Gospel, you need to do that. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all together are great. Of course, each of them has their own individual characteristics that can enhance your study. From that point, probably very next, you need to jump into the book of Acts and learn about the early church and the beginnings of it, as such as found in Acts chapters 1 through 3, and, and learn about how the church grew and how the Christians were spread about by what's called the dysprusia or the dispersion um, which allowed the church to grow as it did and really, in essence, allows us to be Christians today because if it had not been for the dispersion of the early Christians, we wouldn't be Christians here today. We would be so far removed from that mileage-wise and not only that, but time-wise, the church may not exist here in America as we have it. So you, you want to study it next. From that point on, that's when things can get a little subjective Obviously, there's no harm done in turning around going Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and moving right through the New Testament just like that. Totally fine. Obviously, that's your pick to do. However, if you were to study those books in chronological order in which they were dated, uh, you might then jump, surprisingly enough, to the book of James. And I went through that list over and over. Matter of fact, I've got a copy of the list right here in front of me. And the book of James would probably be next as far as one of the earliest New Testament books to be written. So you might remember back years ago, I studied with you the book of James. From that point, if you put them in dated order, more than likely you run into First and Second Thessalonians. We've studied those books as well. You might run then into the book of Galatians and so forth and so on, on up until the point most recently, and I'm skipping ahead for this, uh, Shane covered several of those books like Romans and Hebrews, I think he even may have studied 1st or 2nd Corinthians in the past here. But nonetheless, you move on. Most recently for my studies with you, we have studied books such as the book of Ephesians, the book of Colossians, and the book of Philemon. 
And those are three books, uh, two of which are parallels, the book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians, parallel books, uh, teach two different sides of a real coin. One of them being a book about the church of Christ and one of them being a book about the Christ of the church. Of course, the church of Christ being the Ephesian letter, the Christ of the church being the Colossian letter. Then we studied on last time I was able to study with you and glad to do it, we studied the book of Philemon. And even though I had preached through that book a number of times through the years, verse by verse, I had never studied it before. And I really enjoyed that study. Very short book, but you know, we managed to take 18 weeks with that. So we went quite in depth with it. And uh, moving on chronologically, however, is the way I figure it. Most likely right behind those three books, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, you come to the book of Philippians. And that's where we are tonight in the book of Philippians. We'll be studying it together over the next several weeks, however long it takes. Now, if you'd like, I've got copies of outlines. I'm an outliner. You'll notice when you see the outlines, they're always alliterated. That means it sounds like the one before it, whether it's letters or endings or whatever. You may or may not be familiar with that, but I always outline books. And that is typically one of the first ways that I will study a book. I will take time if I'm going to be studying it on any real in-depth basis for myself or to share with someone. I'll take time and I'll read that book. Usually I'll read it a good ten times. Whether I do it in one sitting, typically I wouldn't, but I'll read it ten times in ten days over and over again. And as I'm doing that, I'm keeping scratch paper and I'm writing out little outlines back and forth, back and forth. And I'll outline those books because that becomes a guide at least of what I choose to study a little bit later. I go back and I say, well, here I found this word, you know, 18 times or 26 times or whatever, and there must be something to that. And why did I find this book 18 times? And it seemed to occur every three to five verses. And I'll just start outlining. And so I've done that and I've got outlines and, and I can, you know, there's copies. If you actually want one, we can pass you one or you can pick one up after class. But uh, on the front of the outline paper that I brought at least, um, there is a very in-depth outline. I can't even count the number of points. There are at least, uh, well, there, there are four points, but then there's a good eight sub-points under each one. It just breaks this book out almost verse by verse. And then on the back side, I've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven more outlines on the back that are just four-point outlines where I say, okay, if you take the book of Philippians... And you look at chapter 1, this is what it is. If you look at chapter 2, that is what it is. Chapter 3, chapter 4, four chapters. And I did that over and over again. I'll share those with you as we go through, hopefully, nonetheless. If someone was viewing online, these same outlines are available. Uh, the very bottom of the homepage. Go all the way to the bottom, hit the button. Don't do it now or you'll lose your stream. But go all the way to the bottom, hit the button on another time. And you can actually download that and print a copy or whatever you like. But nonetheless, in-depth outline is the main outline we'll use. And then many, many sub-outlines aside from that that we'll use. And then last night, I did it to myself again. I've got another outline that's got, I think, 19 points on it that goes through the book. So just kept reading it over and over and finding more, more and more stuff that at least meant something to me. So we'll go through that. Um, I've shared with you as well that many times when you study the epistles of Paul, and this is again very similar to the introductions of the past books, when you study the epistles of Paul, if you want to know something about the book, as far as who wrote it, why he wrote it, when he wrote it, that sort of thing, you can oftentimes do that by very simply starting to read that letter. Look down at the book of Philippians. 
and start reading. Read the first portion of the first chapter. Usually, generally speaking, as a rule, in Paul's letters, the first two or three verses will be kind of a greeting. He kind of goes into, I'm the Apostle Paul, greetings, grace in you and peace from God our Father, that sort of thing. And then verses, generally speaking, from 4 through anywhere from 9 to 11. It varies on the New Testament books. From, from 4 through 9 through 11, the Apostle Paul, if you'll listen closely through inspiration, will tell you just about everything you need to know to get set up on the book. It's particularly when it comes to why he's writing. What's he trying to get across? And then from that point, most likely... Uh, you can continue reading those epistles, those letters, and if you go back and say, okay, Paul said he was going to talk about this, let's see if he does, you'll generally say he does. He does over and over. He'll come back again to the same points many different kind of times. Of course, there'll be various subjects scattered throughout, but he'll typically uh, get back around very clearly to talking about what he said he was going to talk about. And according to what I, lear I learned across the road 25 or 30 years ago, that's kind of what we're supposed to do if we're writers. We're supposed to be telling you what we want to talk about, then talking about it, and then oftentimes we were asked, at least over there, to come back and tell you what we talked about. And so that's kind of generally, it just seems handy that that's kind of the approach the Apostle Paul takes as he wrote so many of his New Testament letters. Now the book of Philippians, just like the book of Colossians, the book of Ephesians, and the book of Philemon, this book of Philippians is what we would oftentimes refer to as one of Paul's prison epistles. And although that has mattered a good bit in some of the other writings, it particularly mattered an awful lot in the book of Philemon because he was writing as a prisoner to a man about a slave and wanting to be released when he himself knew he wasn't going to be released. At least at that point, he was in bondage himself. Uh, but it really means something here because the book of Philippians that we're about to get into um, is by far two things. One, it is the most informal letter he will write. Now, Philemon was very close. That was a very personal letter, the book of Philemon, but this is the most informal letter he will write. In addition to that, it is by far the most positive letter he would write. Now, don't take that to mean that the book of Philippians is all, you know, sunshine and roses because he has to approach some things. He particularly has to warn them cautiously and very deeply, really, about the potential for the infiltration of false teachers, not only that would come, but were already coming into the Lord's church. Remember, if we're dating these letters and going like I gave by example a moment ago, if you started with James, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, Galatians, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Romans, possibly Hebrews, you get down, we're already quite a ways into the New Testament writing. So the church has been established now by the time of this writing a little bit over 30 years or right at it. And so you can say that any congregation, we'll use congregation for example, if a congregation has existed in one location for 30 years, something's already come up. There's already been an issue. There's already been a problem. And so that's the way the church as a whole has always been and will be, uh, that people are people. And so we're not always going to be as Christ-like as we should. There will be issues. So by the time of writing of this book, which would probably be the early 60s, I would date it between 58 and 62, probably lean, or toward, lean more toward the 62 date. But if you date the book then... You're talking about, again, a church that's been in existence right about 30 years. And so there have been already some issues, some problems, and Paul has to warn them of that. But 
Once again, the book of Philippians is by far the most positive letter he would write. And there are several phrases that you can notice if you read through the book, whether you're reading in depth or you're reading casually, just you know, standing back taking a gaze at it or, or what have you, that you'll see over and over again that come up. And one of those words are two words, but it's one root word, the word joy and the words rejoice. Joy and rejoice come up over and over again. They're existing in all four chapters. They're found uh, in the majority of cases, it's the word joy, although rejoice is used many, many times in this. And that particular word, joy and rejoice, those words are used at least, depending on what translation you're looking at, at least 17 times in just this short letter. And so if you were to read the book saying, had never read it before, you just stop what you were doing, say, I'm going to read the New Testament, you get to the book of Philippians, it doesn't take very long for you to stand back and say, okay, this is a book about joy. This is a book about happiness. This is a book about good things. Because in a sense, again, that's the majority of what it is. And in that particular form, to divide those out, the word joy, J-O-Y, is found six times of those 17. And then the, the latter 11 is the word rejoice. And that's just in the English. In the Greek, there's a couple more times that you could argue where the words are very similar as far as their, it's a big word called etymology. I, I didn't even say that right, but it means the root of words, um, where it could be found there as well. Plus the mindset, the thought is there the whole time. So I would encourage you, if you're reading through this book, just, you know, just to read it, look for the word joy. You can oftentimes trace an awful lot uh, there. As a matter of fact, out of a number of the outlines that, uh, I put together the word joy came up over and over again as well as a lot of other phrases. Now, if you want to put a very basic, and again, this paper has about eight of them on the back of it, but if you want to put a very, very basic outline to go along with this book, you could do it in so many ways, but the one that I've kind of selected that I've honed in the last couple of days for myself is chapter 1, talks about the single mind. So chapter 1 is the single mind. Chapter 2 is the submissive mind. And so we're talking about submitting, bowing down to the submissive mind. Chapter 3 is the spiritual mind. Of course, that uh, Paul doesn't go into as much depth here in Philippians as he would in his Corinthian letters about the the carnal mind and the spiritual mind and the comparisons between such. But chapter 3 is the spiritual mind. And then chapter 4 is the secure mind because there's some security that should come from being a believer in Christ and being obedient to Him. So that's just one of the many outlines that could easily be used. But again, the single mind, the submissive mind, uh, the spiritual mind, and the secure mind just one, two, three, four in those chapters. Another way to look at it, which breaks it out just a little bit differently. Most all the outlines I put together were four points, one for each chapter. But one thing I did see in my studies a few weeks ago, at least looking into this, is that you could look at chapter one as being Paul's account. Because he starts out and he tells you what's going on with him, what he's dealing with, how he's in prison, how he's trying to teach and to preach. Nonetheless, even though he's in prison, he's in chains and such. And then chapters 2 through 4, which this just splits it right in half, uh, chapter 1, Paul's account, chapters 2 through 4 are Paul's appeal. 
And he continues to appeal to the brethren there in Philippi and the outlying areas that would ultimately read this. And he appeals to them for several different things. One, to have the right mind. Two, to have appropriate knowledge. And three, to have the appropriate peace. And so the mind, the knowledge, and the peace are the things that he appeals to, and that's chapter 2, 3, 4. So major breakdown, 1, and then 2 through 4. Minor background, uh, back breakdown would be the mind, the knowledge, and the peace. And again, many, many outlines we could go through there. Now, uh, again, I believe in self-introduction, so we'll get into that in just a few moments. If you were to do some research on the city of Philippi, and the areas around it, you would find that it is basically a part of the Macedonian area. If you look on a map, I think, of course, uh, Coach Stevens went through this for weeks and weeks in two to two or two and a half or three different quarters off and on Paul's missionary journeys. You can see the jump that he made over to Macedonia, which aligns itself, if you're reading the book of Acts, somewhere in the latter part of chapter 15 on into 16. He gets what we refer to in chapter 16, the first set, section of that, the Macedonian call where he goes down and ultimately ends up with Lydia and some of the others around there. And then ultimately ends up where? In the jail in Philippi. And it's in the jail in Philippi when he really, I think, makes the biggest impact on the area that he'd had uh, above everything else. Of course, there was a lot that went on in the area and a lot that went on in his preaching as well, but probably his biggest impact was while he was in prison there. And one of the major groups that he came in contact with in the Philippian jail was the jailer himself, and of course his household and such, and it made a big difference again for them. But that was in the city of Philippi. It was in the province. I don't know if you call it province, but the area in and around Macedonia. Uh, it came about, the city of Philippi came about in general, uh, because it was established back way long ago, and I've written a date down if I can see it here, 359 A.D. It was established by Philip of Macedon, which I don't, I don't know all of that history as well. Philip of Macedon was the daddy of Alexander the Great, which even our kids are familiar with and have heard about. But Philip of Macedon established this city right here. He did it in the beginning for the same reasons many people established cities in that day, and that's because they wanted whatever they could get out of it. And Philippi, in the beginning, way back then, in 350, whatever I said, 59 uh, B.C., was a place that was loaded with gold. And so he went in, basically stripped everything out of the place, uh, left it in ruins, although they had inhabitants. It was a hustling, bustling city while it lasted. But like any mining town, even today, if it's stripped out in that way, once it's done, it's done. And it almost became abandoned. And up until the time of Paul, it was kind of back up to, I don't know if you compare it to what we might call a township like Munford or whatever. It's probably much bigger than that. But uh, nonetheless, it was a smaller place. And by that point in time, it had been taken over completely by the Romans. The Romans were overseeing all of it. And they were sending in refugees and basically anybody that rebelled against the Roman government was getting sent off to Philippi. So you got a mix of people that were slung into that. Uh, ultimately, would turn out to be Jew and Gentiles in that same area. And they would really be, really be cramped as far as the fact that they completely had that place under Roman control by 168 B.C. So if you put these times together, 168 B.C., again, is quite a bit of time before Christ. But nonetheless, here we are after Christ and then on even into probably as late as 62-ish A.D., 
we've got the Apostle Paul having been there and now writing back to those people. And he's writing from in prison. So he writes his most joyous, most personal, if you will, or informal, I should say, letter of all of his, all of his for lack of better terms, career while he's in prison. And so everything that I've had to buffer with myself as I've read through this, I'll read it and i say, okay, that's a big deal. But then I stop and say, oh, wow, that's a huge deal because of think of where he was. Think of what he was dealing with. And not only that, more than Paul, think about the people that were there with him in and around Philippi. Again, many of them were exiles and refugees and everything else. And so when he starts talking to them about joy and finding joy and rejoicing and finding hope, in other words, he uses scattered throughout you got to admit, they probably snapped their necks at that. And probably those who took notice and really gave it some examination thought whatever is happening with this movement, and I'm using terms they might have used, or with this sect that has come out of this religion, and again, terms they may or may not have used, it's impressive because it's so much different than what we are familiar with. So I would encourage you as you look through the book, um, look at things like that and back it up with your reading, particularly from Acts chapter 15, the latter, and chapter 16 to kind of get you started. Uh, one of the things that was also a part of this particular township and the area around Philippi by the time of writing, uh, prior to it, but particularly uh, major during the time of writing, was something known as the Road to Indignation which is a, it's originally a Greek word we're trying to transliterate, but it means the road of the nations. And it was that Roman road I talked about uh, many quarters ago that was basically six foot deep of solid stone, and it still exists. There are portions of that road that still exist today that are just as travelable, if that's a word, as they were then. And that was that road that was really connecting that whole part of the world that I think has a little bit to do. I wouldn't want to take it so physical, but you know, we read Galatians 4 and 4 and talk about in the fullness of time. And sometimes when we discuss that, we'll say, well, here are these things that all align perfectly for Christ to come and pave the way just in the physicalities that happened, one of which was language, the Greek language being spread as it was, becoming what was called koine or common Greek. It also had to do with the road system. And this road to Ignatia passed right through the city of Philippi. So it was on a, a thorough way, an interstate, if you will. And so any impact that Paul had, even though it may have been considered a smaller town at the time, ultimately would have a huge impact because it would spread as just a natural uh, way of the day. So that's just a little bit about what you could consider um, with this particular book. Another thing I would encourage you to do is when you're reading this letter, I mentioned the word joy and rejoice 17 times total, depending on how you count it. Look for this word, uh, which is a way I've studied the book several times. Look for the word I. Look for the word I. I counted it up the other night. I may have miscounted. I found the other night 65 times in these four chapters. 65 times Paul said I. Now, we teach our children and we try to remind ourselves, you know, don't, don't use the word I too often because, you know, that could, you know, a lot of people would turn against you pretty quick and you could end up looking proud or boastful or whatever, and that's oftentimes the case. But Paul uses the word I 65 times in 45 verses. And so, again, if you look at the sheer number of verses in this four-chapter book, 
uh, that would be the majority again of verses he uses the word I. And it's interesting that he does that in spite of the fact, unlike some of his other letters, he never mentions his apostleship. Now we know he's an apostle. They know he's an apostle, but he doesn't pull his apostleship card, if you will, out and try to present that to them because, again, he's coming with a very informal, uh, but yet at some, t- some stages, very personal letter, particularly when you're talking about that he's writing to a congregation, to a church, and not to an individual like he did uh, with the book of Philemon. So that's just, just some of the things there that you can notice. Another couple of, and I'm, I'm giving outlines and stuff, trying to lay some groundwork, and I'll tell you why in a moment. But another thing you can do with the first chapter, and this is just the first chapter, and again, this is much different from any of these, but if you look at the first chapter, uh, particularly verses 1 and 2 I mentioned would be the introduction, but verses 3 through 6 of chapter 1, Paul talks about his mind. Verses 7 through 8 of chapter 1, he talks about his heart. And then verses 9 through 11, he brings out a prayer. So his mind, his heart, and a prayer. That's the first 11 verses. And then verses eight, uh, verse 12 through 14, he talks about the chains that he's wearing. That's chains, you know, buckled up against the wall. He talks also about his critics, verses 15 through 19. So those who criticized him often. And as a matter of fact, there was a group at this point that's trying to preach... Uh, trying to preach Christ just to put Paul down. Somehow they figured that would have worked. It wasn't. And then he talks about in verses 28 through 30 about his confidence. And not only his confidence, but the confidence that the brethren there should have in that place. You could also call that his crisis. And several, several more subheadings uh, that you could add to that. Um, if there's anything else, like I say, I don't care for the introduction so much, but we have to mention a few things. Um, I would ask you, and this will be obviously for your own benefit, if you do choose to constantly read the book, it's short enough to do it. If you constantly read the book while we're studying it together, and you do get a copy of these outlines, I would encourage you to, if you read it the first week, use this outline, look at it, read it again, use this outline and such, and keep tracking through that way. As well as, for my personal studies, I'm going to have some memory work. And you'll notice in this book, as we do go through it, I would assume, and this is totally my opinion, without us even realizing it, we know more memory work from the book of Philippians than we probably do any other book. Now, we all, you know, everybody knows their John 3.16s and that sort of thing, but you'll be surprised how many verses that you'll read in chapters, particularly chapters 1 and 2 from this book as well as chapter 4, you know, the I can do all things through Christ uh, section, where you'll say, wow, I already knew that. I mean, I've got that one right here, and I I never tried. Well, uh, very well could be the case. So that being said, any question or comment while I take a deep breath? All right, that's all I care to do with that. Again, general introduction here, the first two verses of this book. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with bishops and deacons, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Very, very typical. You can back up and review what we talked about from the book of Colossians, from the book of Ephesians, as well as from the book of Philemon as well. Same time frame, 
uh, same man, same obviously author, inspire of these things, God. But we talked several times about the, the name Paul and what it means and what it could have meant. Basically, his name Paul, P-A-U-L, means little. And we've made several discussions that we won't go back into, but how it could be the case and possibly could be the case that when Paul took on the name or began to more, more use the name Paul, that he might have been talking about his stature. There was a third century book uh, that came out. Of course, that's not first century, like the time of writing, but two centuries later, a third century book called Paul and Thelka. Who Thelka was, I don't know. But Paul and Thelka, where you've got just a couple of generations before, where somebody sat down and wrote about Paul, uh, similar to what we might say, well, I, you might say, well, I didn't know Paul, my granddaddy did. That's what could have happened at that point. Uh, where somebody sat down and wrote about Paul, and they said he was short, bald, had protruding and bulging eyes, kind of hunched over, you know, described him in that way. Paul was probably similar looking to that. Probably was not a real pretty character. If you read what, he all, what all he went through, all the beatings, all the stripes, all the shipwrecks, uh, being stoned even at one point, perhaps left for dead. You line all that up, probably his, his appeal uh, the handsomeness or lack thereof probably could have been something appropriate there. But I think even much more than that, and we've had this whole discussion before, uh, much more than that, Paul makes reference oftentimes to him being a least of the apostles and him seeing himself from a perspective that he wasn't worthy of anything that he had. As a matter of fact, it's going to be in this book a little bit later when he gets into what we would call his pedigree when he goes through all the things that he could have boasted about, all the things that he could, you know, brag or, or have some level of pride in, and he says he counts all that for dung, that makes no difference. Because whatever he did have, he was willing to give up for Christ, and whatever he would have, he would give up for Christ as well. So uh, the name Paul, meaning little, probably would more refer to, if it, if it referred to anything, probably more referred um, to just his mindset, not that he was lowly, in thinking about himself, he knew he was a child of God's, but the fact that he didn't want to be seen as being anything above anyone else. You can also notice uh, his former name, and his former name, the name Saul, which we mentioned several times. Of course, by now he's, being, he's going by the name Paul, but his former name Saul uh, goes back in reference. Uh, we oftentimes jump immediately back to the Old Testament Saul, which was head and shoulders above the rest. That doesn't describe this man as well. But in, in character... I think it would as far as his influence. I think it would as well. But now he's using this name right here. He says, Paul, King James translation says, Timotheus or Timothy. Having Timothy with him is much like he had done with other people. He does it often with Timothy in his letters. But Paul likes to write. Of course, inspiration bids this. But he likes to write and address not only his own character, but the character of someone else. Uh, because he knows the influence, he knows the impact. Most likely, and this is totally an assumption, most likely he knew that the brethren in and around Philippi were very familiar with Timothy as well and that they would like to hear uh, something about him, something that he was doing well. Now, you know that Timothy was kind of Paul's... I'm trying to put it... In, I, I put it in a, a 1990 swing which most of you will still understand. Uh, Timothy was Paul's boy. 
Timothy was a guy who would do whatever Paul basically called upon him to do. Now, he wasn't working for Paul. That's the real truth about it. He was working for God. But Timothy was the kind of guy, and Paul would do it to him several times, Ephesus being one major place in which he would do it, where Paul would go in, Timothy would go in, they would spend some time, and then Paul would move to the next city, and Timothy would be the guy who gets left behind for years in some very, very difficult places. As a matter of fact, letters that date later than this one, matter of fact, I think in my dating system at least, you would read or study Philippians, and then guess where you jump right next? First Timothy. Uh, Paul's writing letters back to Timothy specifically for him to try to encourage him to say, you know, get up off the ground, remember God's got this, and remember that you're continuing to do this work for God because he's in a very difficult strait by that point in time. And Paul knows that. Paul knows the places where they have been are difficult. But he calls upon Timothy here and says, Paul and Timothy, or Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ. Now, we've talked about the word servants as well uh, so many times. What does it mean to be a servant of Jesus Christ? It, it, basically, and the word he's choosing to use there is one who is enslaved to Christ. Now, it's a, it's a slave by choice. It's a voluntary slave. It's what we might call a bond servant where you work and you work and you work. And uh, we've all worked like this. But you work, why? Because you're trying to get out of the debt you have. And unfortunately, here in the United States, so many times for many of us, that, that, that's like the never-ending thing. That's the story that never ceases. But you work and work and work to try to get out of debt uh, to someone whom you owe. And for God, there's no working that off. I mean, we may as well stand at the, stand at the foot of the throne of God in judgment, uh, reach in our wallets or, or purses and pull out a $1 bill and hand it to Him and just say, debt paid, over and done, thank you for your help, as we would to give, Paul, to give God everything we ever had and ever would have. Because the blood of Christ obviously is much more valuable than that. And so when Paul and Timotheus are working as servants, they're working because they are in themselves, they're enslaved to the God of heaven that has saved them, ultimately through Christ, is who he specifies here, who has bled for them. And one of the better places to see this, if you want to see this same idea illustrated, at least how it comes out, you go back to the Roman letter, Read Romans chapter 1. You'll be familiar with several of the verses along in there. But read Romans chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. You'll be very familiar with 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and the salvation to all them that believe. The Jew first, also the Greek. Back up in verse 15 and 14, he talks about, starting off with 14, I am debtor. And Paul is laying out right there that I am indebted, to everyone that's come before me, I'm indebted to everyone who stands beside me, and I'm certainly indebted to the one who stands above me, which is God. And again, Romans chapter 1, 14 to 16 is an illustration of the same servitude that is being put into place here by Paul and also by Timotheus. And then he specifies exactly that service and whom it goes toward, and that is servants of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, we're fixing to stop in just a moment, but I know I've said so many times, even though this is now 30 years uh, post the establishment of the church, you've still got many outlying Jews 
who are reading things like what the Apostle Paul's writing even right here. And as soon as they hear the name Jesus, in this case as he specifies Jesus Christ, they're going to do one of two things. One, they're going to cut their ears off and they're not going to hear it. Or two, their necks are going to snap at attention and they're going to ask, why is he mentioning that fellow? Why is he talking about Jesus? Because it's God who we serve. It's God who we worship. It's God who we follow. And so Paul uses that too, uh, and not just for that reason, but when he mentions Jesus so early in a letter, be aware that there will be those, not necessarily the church in Philippi, but there will be those at that time who will either close their ears or snap their necks at just the name Jesus. So we'll get back into that next week and start digging in the book. You'll notice a lot of peculiarities to this first verse as compared to some of the others. Thank you for your time.